you cast her upon She had you at hello When Zul asks if you're a god You better not say no Maverick blew up that Meg Yet he was hated by Bex Where will our Tom Cruise head next? Did his ship run aground? Did Tom help me help you? Do human heads even weigh eight pounds? Did crews break down or break through? And how does this flick play now? And did it show us the funds? Welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that won't stop until all of our listeners are holding a Coke, wearing your own shoe, playing a Sega game featuring you, while singing your own song in a new commercial starring you, broadcast during the Super Bowl in a game you are winning. I'm Becky, (laughs) the podcast host most likely to be out here for you. You don't know what it's like to be me out here for you. It's an up at dawn, pride swallowing siege that I will never fully tell you about, okay? Help me help you. Help me help you. I'm Seth, the host most likely to shoplift the pootie. <laughs> and I'm Chris, the podcast host who is not going to do what you all think I'm going to do, which is just flip out! <laughs> <laughs> it's part two of our cruise control double feature that Seth anointed something last episode and I will not resay. I will! <laughs> it's the when we were young. You had me at hello, Goose. I'm Maverick. Autumn Cruise. <laughs> and Autumn is for Autumn. Oh, but it's God. Aw- but it's Autumn. <laughs> oh. oh, boy, Seth. <laughs> it gets better the more I explain it. Did not approve that. In our last episode, we felt the need, the need for speed, looking back at Tom Cruise's action star persona in his hit film Top Gun, and the movie took Seth and Chris's breath away, but it did not take my breath away. <laughs> Becky retained her breath the whole time. Yeah. She lost her love and feeling, <laughs> which she never actually possessed in the first place. <laughs> Today we'll be focusing on the other side of Tom Cruise, the dramatic romantic leading man, and the perfect movie to highlight the side of him is Jerry Maguire, the 1996 film directed by Cameron Crowe, featuring Cruise as a sports agent who grows a conscious and then uh, the movie begins. Jumping back in the DeLorean a Saturday morning cause we both be cynical and radical but was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Do we think it certainly sucked? Now we're jaded and all grown up and there was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a person or will it be fun? Decades later will it still hold up? When we were young. When we were young. 
So my question to start off this episode is, what is your Tom Cruise history? Is he an actor that you really enjoyed watching when you were younger? Is he somebody you still enjoy watching? I'll go, because I probably have the least connection to Tom Cruise (laughs) in terms of an interesting story. He was just always taken for granted, I feel like. Like, he basically came up at the same time that we did. His big movies were 1983, the year that I was born. So he's just, he was like the mobile, like, spinning above (laughs) my crib. Oh, my God. It was the ducky, the pony, the doggy, and And Tom Cruise. And the man running (laughs) swiftly. He was just always there, and so he is what personifies a movie star to me still. Him and, I think, Julia Roberts is, like, the female equivalent to me. It's just, like, I don't know that there will ever be anyone who says, like, movie star more to me than those two, even though I've now gone back to, you know, Hollywood history and have, like, a big appreciation for, like, older stars like Cary Grant and and Katherine Hepburn, but there's still something about the guy who can star in big romantic dramas that somehow make a lot of money, even though they are romantic dramas or big action movies. He always felt a little bit, like, larger than life, and so, like, I just feel like the majority of his persona was just like playing in the background as a lot of things were like on the news we've discussed is like there was always a Tom Cruise story he was dating Nicole Kidman or you know starring in something I think when we were kids I don't think the Scientology was I don't know if that seeped into like anything I knew about him and I'm not sure how public it was at that time but like it seemed like it was just like cool like he's he's doing this he's doing that it It was was great publicity it was less of a thing because he had a different publicist until right before the couch jumping Yeah. And then he hired his sister. (laughs) Yeah. So it just always felt like he personifies Hollywood. He was really cool. Like, I liked his movies. None of his movies were, like, my very favorite film, I don't think. You know, in a way, I just appreciate him more now because we have less of that, like, star power. And he's still out there. So it's mostly just, like, I'm kind of in awe of him as just, like, personifying, like, what a movie star is, especially when we were young. Tom Cruise as a person, as a celebrity figure, was really like a constant presence in my childhood. I feel like it was for all of us who were kind of around this age. Um, I didn't necessarily like start watching his movies when I was a bebe, but really around the time of starting with Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise movies became kind of appointment viewing for me, especially in the theater, because almost all of his movies were and are those big spectacles. And I paid little, if any, attention to like celebrity news at that time. To me, it was just like, oh, noticing that Mission Impossible was coming out in the theaters, and I remember seeing the trailer and being really excited for that. And just the idea of seeing Spycraft on the big screen was a really exciting thought for me. So I remember absolutely seeing Mission Impossible at least two or three times in the theater. I lost my shit about that movie. I like watched it on VHS afterward. And of course you can you can get plenty of my opinions on other Tom Cruise movies if you listen back to our Magnolia episode. <laughs> Uh, because seeing that movie in particular in the theater was a formative experience for literally the entire trajectory of my adult life and, like, where I live and what I've tried to pursue as my career. I feel like there was, especially with the couch jumping and several other stunts that he did, it seemed like there was a kind of collective souring on 
Tom Cruise, and it seemed like there was a point at which he kind of became the butt of his own joke. And I definitely would say that he kind of leaned into that in a way that I don't necessarily know if he was fully aware of. But how I always perceived Tom Cruise growing up was like, oh, this guy's definitely like a, a blockbuster movie actor, but he's also very clearly incredibly serious about what he does. And even growing up, like, even seeing him in, like, Mission Impossible, it was very abundantly clear that this was not a person who, like, just did anything for a payday or just d- took any role for the hell of it. Like, he was al- it was always very clear, it, it was always very clear watching any of his work um, how serious he was about it. Um, and again, it was, like, a lot of my family and friends and folks, like, like folks in my orbit loved movies of his like Rain Man, and they loved Risky Business. So I know that those movies were on, even if I didn't necessarily see them. Um, yeah, so it's kind of funny. It was, it was like, we, I feel like we all kind of grew up with Tom Cruise as uh, first an institution, then kind of a punchline. Um, but yeah, my, my, my Cruise-tory, um really started with Mission Impossible, um, but also, I have to say that, like, Interview with the Vampire was a huge moment, uh, not just for him, not just for tiny gay goth kids, uh, but also for the city of New Orleans. Mm. Interview with the Vampire was one of the first, like, big feature films in the 90s that was shot in New Orleans, and it was a really huge deal for the city. Uh, and beloved former guest co-host of the show, Chelsea Steiner had Tom Cruise rent out her house. Tom Cruise rented out Chelsea's house during the duration of Interview with the Vampire. Is it in the movie? No, it's not in the movie. He lived there? He lived there. In her house? In her house. The house that she lived in was a converted church of some kind. And it was a really fascinating, beautiful house. And they would rent it out sometimes to people who were, you know, needing to stay there for movie productions or other things. So, fun fact, Tom Cruise taught Chelsea how to bowl. (laughs) Um, Is there a bowling alley in this house? (laughs) Not in the house. Not in the house. There are bowling alleys in New Orleans. There are some amazing bowling alleys. Rock and Bowl, if you ever go to New Orleans, and I recommend that everyone should while it's still there. There's an amazing place called Rock and Bowl. Uh, But he taught her how to bowl, which I don't think is a thing that most Hollywood people would, like, take the time to do with someone, especially just someone whose house they're staying at. And yeah, everything I've ever heard about people's, like, individual interactions with Tom Cruise has been, like, he's he's literally the most magnetic and kind person ever, and you never want to tell him no about anything. I'm yeah. like, yeah, well, it, it, with that, I'm kind of glad that he uses his powers mostly not for evil. We'll get to that. We'll get there. Something you said, Chris, about him being taken for granted, I feel that as well, because throughout my childhood, he just seems like a movie star. He was just there. He was like Mel Gibson. He was like Julia Roberts. Like, they just, those are the movie stars we have. Right. And so I didn't really pay that much attention um, until I think Jerry Maguire, because that's a movie I saw in the theaters, but I'll get to that later when we talk about seeing Jerry Maguire. But also the one-two punch in 1999 of Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut, I was very much into film, and that was like Paul Thomas Anderson and Stanley Kubrick, and him being in both of those movies, I think that's when I started having a little bit more 
interest in him as an actor and not taking him for granted, but just being like, man, this guy's a legend, but also he's doing like phenomenal work because I absolutely loved him in Magnolia and refer back to our Magnolia episode or our thoughts about Magnolia. We we liked it. We liked it. <laughs> we liked it. <laughs> but I can confirm because I've met Tom Cruise and I'll tell that story now. 2009, I think, 2009. I used to work the red carpet for E! as a red carpet reporter, and I was at the Valkyrie premiere. Usually at red carpets, I wasn't E! News, I was just E! Online, so I was at the end. I wouldn't always get everybody, especially the A-list talent. Like, maybe I would get, like, I think I talked to Kenneth Branagh. Sorry, I did not call him (laughs) A-list. But, but, you know, not the, like, the star, star, star. Like, sometimes it wasn't guaranteed that I would get them. So, like, I'm waiting the whole time to see, like, am I going to get Tom Cruise? Probably not. Um, But he talked to everybody. He talked to everybody on that carpet. And he got to me, and I got to talk to him and ask him questions. And I'm like, the whole time I'm like, I'm looking at Tom Cruise. He is a real person. He's in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) Which is very much the same um, thought I had when I interviewed Jim Carrey. Like, these people that are just so larger than life. Um... And such legends and what they do that you're just like, I can't believe you're a real person and I could like see you and you're making eye contact with me. So that's a lot what was going through my head. Um, But I got to ask him a few questions and sometimes it wasn't even that you got one and out, but there was like a few back and forth. Um, And it was great. He was very, very much like a used car salesman where (laughs) it is so there's 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 red flags (laughs) where you're like, this isn't a normal human being (laughs) like there is something underneath there. Like he's too nice. He's not like he's on. Um, but well, yeah. And like use car salesman in the sense that you sense that he's trying to close a deal. Like he's trying to sell me him. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Um, and, and I ended it by saying, by the way, I loved you Magnolia. It's one of my favorite performances of yours. And I, I wish you would have won the Oscar. And he shook my hand and he goes, thank you. Thank you so much. Like I'm the, first person in life to <laughs> congratulate him on a performance <laughs> i was just like that's like the the uh energy level mm-hmm. of of him talking to you and that was like a few minute interaction on a red carpet and and i also have never heard anything bad from anybody who's personally worked with him like professionally i had a friend who was his assistant at Cruz wagner and I mean, she worked there for like years and not one unkind word about him. I don't know about his personal life and nobody does. does. And I really do think there is something wrong there, (laughs) to put it mildly. Um, Like he's just there's something there's something wrong with this guy. Who's very, very kind and nice. Okay, but there's (laughs) there's another story and it's. Nobody we know, but there is a phenomenon every year that's referred to as cruise cakes. Oh, yes, I know this. Yeah, there is uh, a bakery, like a literal mom and pop bakery in, I think it's in North Hollywood, somewhere in the valley. And they make this apparently wondrous frosted coconut cake. And every single year, Tom Cruise sends dozens upon dozens of these cakes um, freshly baked out to people that he's worked with, people who've randomly worked for him, people who he's met only one time. <laughs> Becky, do you got a cruise cake? Oh, I've here it is. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <One> <laughs> Let's get a hold of. Okay. Um, okay there. 
we'll never know because I won't share it because <laughs> I wasn't actually he would send me every year. Um, but that's insane, Seth. And that's the red flag is that it's like one of those like too good to be true. But why is that a red? Fl- is it only a red flag? Relatively speaking, compared to the venality and viciousness and opportunism that we know pervades all of the Hollywood industry. What I'm trying to get at is, like, what is it about his apparent eminent kindness, generosity, earnestness that strikes not just you, but strikes so many people as a red flag? It's disgenuine because it doesn't feel real. Okay, well... I don't know why that sounded very authoritative, like I'm about to, like, share intimate knowledge of the Chris, why are you eating a piece of cake over there? Why aren't you sharing that cake with us? What's going on here? It's a cruise cake. No! I also, you know, I have met people who have worked with him and talked to him, and even famous people are very taken with him. Like, even people who work with other big celebrities are in awe of him, which... And and have nothing but nice things to say about him, you know, and and are like everyone's like kind of like tickled to be in his presence. So we talked about in the last episode that he did kind of manufacture this early on. Like he had a movie star persona before he was really a guaranteed like movie star. Like he took control of his persona and obviously shortly after that had was afforded the ability to really control his environment. Uh, and to control his celebrity image in particular. So th- there's a big piece of Scientology here that you can't not. They're <laughs> down the street from us, please, Chris. W- we're going to be labeled a suppressive podcast. Yeah, don't give them our location. God damn it! <laughs> Fuck. They we're, didn't know until just now. We're an SP now. We're, an, we're a suppressive podcast. So I mean, that obviously like is also weird. Like that whole religion quotes around religion is about weird levels of control and keeping things secret that should be the tenet of the whole thing, but for some reason, only certain people can know about. Some reason. Yeah, the reason is money. So, I mean, I think you can't not at least consider that as, like, a part of it. But also, I mean, when you're at that level of stardom, you really have to like control yourself because anything that you say will be any look that you if you give people a like not even a dirty look but a neutral look it will be interpreted as you're an asshole like that happens all the time is like i i hear stories about how someone's difficult i'm like were they difficult or were they just not effusively nice to you at, like every single turn because <laughs> or was their chipotle lunch disagreeing with them a little yeah, bit like I mean, what was happening I, I get your point i am not famous but i have interviewed many famous people and my few moments with him stand out because they were not a normal human interaction he made me feel like i'm the only person in the room and he's never met me before and like it just doesn't i've met so many nice people that feel human <laughs> And this didn't feel human. And it wasn't mean. 
you know, but that's why that's why red flags like this is why like this something's odd about this. And I feel like I'm not alone because it's widely known. I don't know if you guys know that Christian Bale based his performance of Patrick Bateman off of Tom Cruise. Specifically, there was like an interview he did on Letterman where he's like smiling and laughing maniacally and just like his whole vibe. And I'm like, I'm not the only person to feel this. Like something is like off with this person, even though by all accounts, everybody in Hollywood that works with him thinks he's the nicest guy, which I'm sure he is. I'm sure those aren't lies. But that's why it's just like there's like an asterisk there that I'm like, I'm not so sure about you. I don't know. I think we should move off this subject soon. But the only other thing I'll say is that what you're talking about is referred to as pedestaling, that that behavior of like treating someone as if they're the only other person in the room. Mm-hmm. And that can be a sign of narcissism and a sign of a narcissistic or toxic personality. Your experience of that was absolutely, completely valid. Um, and I can definitely understand why it felt like a red flag, because that literally can be a very common pattern of behavior among people who are manipulative in a toxic way, even if they don't necessarily know it. Well, he is about as far from a normal person as you can get. So. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I just feel like it makes sense that something would feel that he's not normal, whether that's really like, you know, an issue or just like a factor of the fact that he lives this like insanely like under a microscope life that he's obviously in many ways like manufactured himself. But but I just think it it checks out with like who he is, is that like he's not normal. He isn't normal. He's not. Totally. (laughs) So let's get back to Tom Cruise's professional life. (laughs) (laughs) Tom Cruise starred in 10 movies in the 10 years between Top Gun and Jerry Maguire. They were The Color of Money, Cocktail, Rain Man, Born on the Fourth of July, Days of Thunder, Far and Away, A Few Good Men, The Firm, Interview with the Vampire, and in 1996 was Mission Impossible. So the three of us actually sat down and watched Mission Impossible um, again just for the hell of it. And I think that for the most part, we enjoyed it. Hated it. No, I didn't. Um, <laughs> it was your movie. And, you <laughs> and I also insisted that we watch it. Yeah, it was really fun to watch it again. I had actually just recently bought it, so I had watched it a few months ago. But when we started wanting to do these particular Tom Cruise episodes, I mean, for one, it was hard to select exactly which Tom Cruise movies to do because almost all of them, you know, have something to say about them. But it was fun to watch it this time because before I had watched it as sort of a Brian De Palma movie because I was in the middle of rewatching bunch of Brian De Palma and this time I was kind of watching it as a Tom Cruise movie and looking at just the way this franchise there are now six of the movies and counting and how much of it is tied to him and even from this first movie he's not really playing a character he may as well just be Tom Cruise in this movie and every one of these movies like he's just Tom Cruise being a different kind of guy and like there's no character really of Ethan Hunt he like he has he's almost like James Bond and that he has like different personal life in every episode and has different traits like sometimes he's like has like long hair like in the John Woo one and is like a badass like motorcycle guy who's like more James Bondy sometimes he's more domestic like in the J.J. Abrams movie so just like watching it as this like perfect like as much as like I probably enjoy Tom Cruise more when he's trying to do playing different characters it's fun to watch like it just feels like such a perfect match with him which like he again created himself because he produced this movie himself he chose this project himself and made it so it's not like he just like lucked into it but it was the perfect match of like 
he's going to play this kind of slightly larger than life, somewhat human superhero character and just do all these crazy stunts, which this first movie is less about like crazy stunts and more it's, they're more like suspense sequences like that, that wire sequence, especially the most iconic one is like, that's more like a Hitchcock kind of Mm. sequence, which feels much more like Brian De Palma would do, but you know, eventually this evolved into like him like topping himself over and over him again, flying into space on a rocket. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that absolutely that hits the nail on the head perfectly, Chris. Like I, I I hadn't seen the first Mission Impossible in at least a decade. Like maybe I hadn't seen it since like watching it on VHS tape. Like it's it's it had been a long time, and and basically all the other Mission Impossible movies were also appointment viewing for me in the theater. Always ready and looking forward to see what insane thing Tom Cruise will try to kill himself on next. But this first movie is absolutely you put it so perfectly, Chris. It's the suspense version of this kind of storytelling, and I think it works especially well on those merits. The list collected stole was a decoy. That's correct. The actual list is secure at Langley. Galitzin was a lightning rod. He was one of ours. This whole operation was a moment. This whole operation was a moment. Yeah. The moles inside and like you said you survived I'll show you something Ethan since your father's death your family's farm has been in receivership now suddenly they're flush with over 120 grand in the bank. Your father's illness was supposed to have wiped out that bank account. Dying slowly in America, after all, can be a very expensive proposition. So, why don't we quietly get out of here onto a plane? I can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. Enough is enough. You have brought it, cajoled, and killed, and you have done it using loyalties on the inside. You want to shake hands with the devil that's fine with me. I just want to make sure that you do it in hell. And it was so fun watching it now, having seen other Brian De Palma movies, noticing all the ways that it is very much a Brian De Palma movie, too. I know there are other prominent movies that feature spycraft and and that kind of thing, but I still think it's relatively very rare to see that depicted in cinema. And so there's something that's so inherently fun about that to me to watch in a movie because it's all based on deception. And that is something that's inherently dramatic. Like, everyone involved is inhabiting a lie in some level or another, and I totally agree that that, like, the character, quote-unquote character of Ethan Hunt is totally a cipher, but that's kind of the point. Like, this person, the only reality of this person is the masks that he's putting on for that moment in order to do whatever his current mission is and then move on to the next thing. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And, you know, even beyond that, I thought it was just extremely well done. And yeah, I loved the 
wire sequence when he's what's he doing in that moment? He's trying to steal the list the of all the yeah. He's trying <laughs> the to MacGuffin the necklace. Right. He's trying to like steal the list of all of the real spies and what all their actual names are compared to their aliases. That sequence is so long. That's like it's like at least 10 or 12 minutes maybe or something like that but it is an absolute edge of your seat moment but all it is comprised of is a guy dangling from a fucking air conditioner vent (laughs) yeah it was a very smart decision to not have music because the tension built and built and i feel like i don't love that movie but i did enjoy watching it this time i've only seen it once before but that sequence alone is i think i kept telling you guys to shut up because i wanted to watch it (laughs) (laughs) yeah becky you were very in love with tom cruise hanging from ropes and you were very mad at us that we were continuing to talk i was because i don't i have only seen it twice now in my entire life and it was spectacular yeah unlike like a lot of the sequels, I think this one actually does have a lot of the espionage. And I like how European it feels, which Absolutely. is very, again, De Palma-ish kind of. It what feels- makes it feel European? Well, it takes place there, but just, it's hard to say exactly what it is, but like, I guess the cast is very international. Like, it doesn't feel like an American movie to me. Yes. Until the end, maybe that end, like, sequence feels much more like a generic action movie. Well, but even that, even the end sequence is taking place on a bullet train. Yeah. In America, we have no similar technology to that. It does, I agree with you. To answer your question, Becky, I think it's European in a very, like, in the sense of, like, the word continental, like, how the word continental is used to describe like a visual sensibility um there is something about it that's very fish out of water almost and of course the character of ethan hunt in all of these movies he's you know at one point he's completely abandoned and disavowed by his spy agency and no one will give him the time of day that's a motif that recurs through all these movies but in that first one i do think it does a really excellent and very efficient job of kind of setting that tone and helping you feel like something's kind of off kilter and his character knows that something is off kilter, even though he's like on this one very defined mission and he, you know, he's trying to execute the mission perfectly. It does a great job of like setting you up to be completely thrown off the rails and completely disorient you just as it's disorienting his character. Yeah, it's very striking how, like, they assemble this team of people, some of whom are pretty recognizable, like Emilio Estevez and Kristen Scott Thomas, and then kills them all off immediately and makes it, like, a lone man kind of against the bad guys. I I think that was a, like, a nod to the TV show, which was an ensemble show, but, like, also just interesting making it like a Tom Cruise vehicle out of an ensemble. And, you know, if we're talking about it being kind of a perfect vehicle, vehicle for tom cruise i mean someone who's constantly like evolving into other personas ripping off masks you know and doing stunts like it just feels like it's almost like a documentary of what it must be like yeah, to be tom cruise this feels like the perfect role for him because it allows him tom cruise to do crazy things that he's actually doing maybe not so much in this first one but in the later ones but we don't really get a specific character to ethan hunt he's basically just tom cruise <laughs> Mm-hmm. So let's move on to Jerry Maguire. If anybody else wants to come with me, this moment will be the moment of something real and fun and inspiring in this God-forsaken business, and we will do it together. Who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? 
coming with me besides Flipper here? This is embarrassing. Jerry Maguire was directed and written by Cameron Crowe. It stars Tom Cruise, Renee Zellweger, Cuba Gooding Jr., Bonnie Hunt, Jonathan Lipnicki, and Jay Moore, who's built behind Jonathan Lipnicki in my list. (laughs) (laughs) As he should be. Well, he should be. (laughs) It was released December 13th, 1996. The budget was $50 million. The box office was $273 million domestic. This was Tom Cruise's fifth consecutive $100 million plus making movie, which was a new record. So... That's five movies in a row made over $100 million. The film was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Editing, and Best Actor for Tom Cruise, and it won for Cuba Gooding Jr. So this was the year that Jerry Maguire ended up being the only film of the five movies nominated for Best Picture to be produced by a studio. The other films, Shine, The English Patient, Secrets and Lies, and Fargo, were all independently financed movies. This has never happened Uh before or since. (laughs) Yeah, the delineation between quote-unquote independent and quote-unquote studio movies was always largely a marketing tactic that ultimately, I don't have specific dates on this, but I think even around this time, a lot of the studios had already set up their own quote-unquote independent studios. They had. So, like, English Patient was Miramax, which was Weinstein which was not like the scrappy little underdog even right. at this point. That was kind of the movie that like cemented him as like the Oscar king. But Fargo was New Line, I believe, cuz I think the Coen brothers do New Line. Yeah, so these were yeah, again they weren't some yeah. of them were like Shine was I think a smaller film, and you know, Secrets, Secrets and, and Lies was Mike Lee. Yeah. Yeah, so it they were certainly weren't like huge movies, but um it wasn't, they weren't all the scrappiest little movies either. Right, like, right. English Patient is, like, a pretty sweeping movie. Like, I'm not sure how much it costs, but, it like, it isn't, it wasn't shot on, like, a shoestring. So, the reviews for Jerry Maguire, um, it has an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was mostly very good. Um, Adam Smith from Empire Magazine said, Director Cameron Crowe has written and directed a deft, funny, shamelessly upbeat romantic comedy, and to top it all, drawn out the finest performance of Tom Cruise's career. Jonathan Rosenbaum from Reader Magazine had a different opinion. Um, He says, The film is all but crushed by Tom Cruise's screen-hogging demands that everything collapse and swoon around him. If the star gave us more of a rest, we might have more of a movie. This through line here, there really does seem to be this, like, constant current of people being mad at Tom Cruise for acting in movies. (laughs) And, like, it's not like Tom Cruise needs, like, my personal defense as a person, but it's been pretty consistent here across all the reviews that you've talked about, where, like, basically the largest negative thing that people are reacting to is not that they think he's doing a bad job of acting, but, like, negatively reacting against the fact that he's an actor. How dare he act? Yeah, it's like, it's kind of... It feels kind of reactionary and weird. Yeah, I agree. And it's always been a fascinating thing to me when we record the podcast, like to go back and survey critical opinion of these movies, like at the time that they were made. Because it feels like over time, like we can perceive things that were like in the atmosphere then that wouldn't necessarily be apparent at the time. Well, it's true. And I I mean, I guess it's always been true. Because like when you go back and read reviews of like Catherine Hepburn, you know, people were savage to her in a lot of things. And it's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like that's <laughs> Catherine Hepburn in a classic movie. But it, it's true. And I think it's true here too, in that there 
is some kind of resentment of stars in the moment. And like even my dad, I mentioned that we were doing this podcast and he said something that I remember him saying like when I was a kid as well, which is like, oh, he can't act. He's just always playing himself. And it's like, it's true. There's a Tom Cruise persona that he's never so far away from a Tom Cruise persona, unless maybe it's Tropic Thunder where he's like buried (laughs) under makeup, but like he's always playing with that to some extent, but that's not necessarily the same thing as like can't act or like giving a bad performance. But I think that perspective on him is pervasive even among a lot of critics and that he's just a movie star being like a movie star in all of his movies. And there's no variation in his performances, which I don't think is true. Some trivia about Jerry Maguire. The story for this movie was reportedly based on real-life Orange County uh, sports agent Lee Steinberg. Um, Cameron Crowe has also stated that Jerry's memo mission statement was influenced by Jeffrey Katzenberg's tirade after leaving Disney. By the way, that mission statement is available online. Cameron Crowe wrote it. Uh, of course he did. Before the filming of the movie, and you can read it online, all 25 pages. I will politely decline. I was going to send it to you, and then I forgot to read it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we know whose side you're on, Jay Sugar. Bob, or Bob Sugar. Bob Jay Moore, yeah. The role of Jerry Maguire was not written for Tom Cruise. It was originally written for Tom Hanks. What? Yep. Uh, Hanks was unable to commit because of working on That Thing You Do, which he also directed. The part of Dorothy was originally written for Winona Ryder, but she screen tested with Tom Cruise, and basically the feedback was they look like brother and sister. I'm sorry, that would not work. Aren't they like the same height, too? Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can see why you'd want her in that role, but yeah, it's hard to see that working. I think it really works, because Renee Zellweger wasn't much of a name at the time, if at all. Yeah, And I think uh, it not works. At all. Yeah. I mean, she'd been in, I think, Empire Records yeah. and maybe a couple other movies, but... I think it you really need someone who's not also a star to pull that relationship off. Oh yeah, and I feel like Winona Ryder's like celebrity persona was very well defined at that point. Yeah. Other people that were up for the Jerry Maguire role, Alec Baldwin, Johnny Depp, Sean Penn, John Travolta, Woody Harrelson, Bruce Willis, Everybody. 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 For the role of Dorothy, who also went up for the role, was Patricia Arquette, Cameron Diaz, Janine Garofalo. They asked her if she could lose weight. (laughs) Um, It's also not surprising. Honestly, like, half the female lead roles in movies in the 90s, Janine Garofalo was considered for, and they asked her to lose weight for the role. Like, it's, I've I've heard that story so many fucking times. It's... It's really crazy. It's, it's funny because really she was crazy. in like one rom-com. Yeah. <laughs> and then I guess she ends up on the list for all the rom-coms, but it's like, do you want Janine Garofalo or do you want like a skinny, yeah. like beautiful actress? Not well, Janine Garofalo. No offense to Janine Garofalo, just like yeah, not who she like, is. The thing was, it wasn't because she was in, what was it, The Truth About Cats and Dogs? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it wasn't because she was in that. It was because she was in comedies and she was actually funny. And the answer to your question is yes, they did want a completely other human <laughs> who somehow was able to steal Janine Garofalo's skin and sense of humor. Well, um, if she had been in Jerry Maguire, she might not have been available to be in Romy and Michelle. And that's a sad world that I don't want to think about. <laughs> um, Jamie Foxx auditioned for the part of Rod. Did not get it. Um, that makes sense. That, that makes out. sense. And yeah. Janet Jackson auditioned for the role of Marcy. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and also Regina King was also she was she was pregnant during the movie. That was her baby wow. and her bump. <laughs> wow, she brings her own bump. 
BYOB. Um, one more bit of trivia I think you'll find very interesting, at least this audience uh, right in front of me. Um, Amy Mann, um, her song Wise Up was originally written for Jerry Maguire, not Magnolia. Yep. And it's listed in the sound in the credits of the movie. And I'm like, wait, I did not hear that song in this movie. It is not in this movie. Was it written for a particular scene? I don't know that. But it's in a very big scene in Magnolia. So Can you imagine yeah. the Magnolia scene replaced by the Bruce Springsteen song? <laughs> I can imagine Cuba Gooding Jr. singing Wise Up. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. So did you guys see Jerry Maguire in theaters when you were young or on VHS? No. No. I absolutely did not see any Cameron Crowe movies in the theater growing up. Like what other what other movies had Cameron Crowe done at this point? Um, say anything? And almost okay. famous? Okay. I don't know if he did that. Oh, oh so Almost but... Famous was before this? After. After. I'm just saying when uh, we were young, he did Almost Famous. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Cameron Crowe was absolutely not a thing to me at this time. It's just not even on my radar screen. Like, this is not the kind of movie that I would seek out in the theater. No one I knew was watching these movies at the time. This was definitely, the, this was a time in my life when I would, like, watch the Oscars every year on TV. Like, that, it was kind of appointment viewing for me at the time. So I remember hearing about Jerry Maguire mostly from, like, Oscar jokes and skits. Same but opposite, because, <laughs> well, I didn't see the movie, but it was not because I did not have an interest. I had a very strong interest in seeing this movie. I just couldn't, because it was rated R, oh. and I wasn't old enough to see it yet. And, like, I knew there was some, like, racy material in it that I probably wouldn't want to see with my parents, even if they had let me see it. This was around the same time that I started watching rated R movies, but I was selective about which ones I would ask my parents to take me to because I didn't want to be watching <laughs> Never Stop Fucking Me, which is a line from this movie, uh, you know, with my parents because that was awkward at the time. This could just as easily have been my magnolia for this movie. It's like forcing my family to go watch that. Yeah, it could have been. I'm glad it wasn't. But it was very much a movie that I wanted to see. You know, we just talked about our Tom Cruise history, and it occurred to me while you guys were talking that, like, most of his movies, for as big of a star as he was at this point, a lot of his movies were pitched to adults and were not, like, something that I would have or could have watched as a kid, like like cocktail risky business even interview with the vampire right yeah i none of those were movies i could really see even the firm i think was rated r even though that wasn't a particularly like explicit movie there he wasn't in that it was like top gun and then mission impossible so i had probably not seen very many tom cruise movies this was about the time that i was seeing him referenced on the rosie o'donnell show a lot and oh my she was God, in love with yes. him that's right yes that's i i also watched the rosie o'donnell show and yes her obsession with tom cruise was absolutely like one of my first like real exposures to his star power yeah i think it, I actually went back and That's watched so the interview where he was on the show with her um, just because I was like, what was going on there? I mean, <laughs> clearly a lot that was manufactured for television viewing. But um, yeah, and it, I think it was while he was promoting this movie that he went onto that show. So it was a moment in in, in movie star history. <laughs> but um I didn't actually see this movie, but I was very aware of all the, like, quotes from it and 
what it was like i feel like i knew everything about this movie before i had seen it and eventually then did watch it i think on vhs like as a rental or something like that i have a very different story oh no um so i was 13 when this movie came out and this was the year that i started getting really 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 into film and my mom was supportive like anytime i wanted to rent something from the video store she'd rent it for me doesn't matter what rating it was. She was she was renting me Carrie. She was renting me One for Live the Cuckoo's Nest. Solo. I don't think I knew what that was at the time. Um, <laughs> but like I saw A Clockwork Orange. I saw like I saw Amadeus. <laughs> like I saw all these movies when I was thirteen. And so this year was the first year that I went and saw every movie nominated for an Oscar. Probably not every single Oscar, but definitely Best Picture and probably the acting categories too. And my mom went with me. And I have to say, like, that's probably one of the best memories I have of me and my mom is that we made a point to go out to the theater. And that was the goal was just let's see all the nominated Best Picture movies. And so I saw every single one in theaters. And this was one of them. So I saw it when I was 13. And I really, really liked it. I owned it on VHS. I watched it a lot. And it wasn't my number one pick for Best Picture that year. I think it would actually at the time have been Shine, because I loved Shine. And if you remember from our Scream episode, how I got a ticket to Shine to go into Scream, but then they didn't let us in. So I had to go see Shine. And I really liked it. So um, I think I mean, that, they're basically the same movie. Yeah, so. it's good memories. And I got very, very into this movie because I think it was just lumped in with all those movies I saw that year in 1996 when I got really into movies. That's great. I really love, like, I, I, I miss that. I miss, like, being able to do that and, like, plan on going to multiple movies as an activity to do. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> it would sure be nice to go back to. Remember movies? <laughs> it's funny, because that was probably maybe, I don't know how f- much further back a movie where I saw none of the Oscar nominees in theaters would have been, <laughs> but I definitely didn't see any of those mm. movies that year, because... It was like the suburbs. They weren't. They yeah, weren't on the radar. and like weirdly, yeah. like I said, I did watch the Oscars every year, and it was kind of appointment viewing. But I didn't have any kind of like strategic goal of seeing all those movies. I feel like at the time, especially for me, it was like if something like really like rose out from the crowd and won a lot of Oscars, then I would be like, okay, well, I definitely have to make it a point to go see that movie. I think it also was that I gravitate toward very adult, gritty, or, like, just not your conventional movie. I think we've talked about, like, I was not into Dante's Peak and, like, Speed and Mm -hmm. and that kind of, like, big budget, you know. Went into quality. I wasn't into, like, thrill rides. We don't all love cinema. That's fine, (laughs) Becky. It's okay. I wasn't into blockbusters. Like, that just wasn't my thing. I liked the more intimate movies and this year in particular was like full of them. Actually, now that you say that, like, I think that was part of the reason I wanted to see Mission Impossible in the theaters. It's because it was like a spy movie that's not like a kiddie cartoon kind of thing. And I feel like late, a little bit later on, I went and sought out Vanilla Sky in the theaters for the same reason. Because it was like, there's something about this. It feels more like grown up or a little bit more out there. You're telling me to dance. No. I'm saying... To get back to the guy who first started playing this game. Remember? Way back when, when you were a kid, it wasn't just about the money, was it? Was it? Was it? Do your job! 
Don't you tell me to dance. Hey, hey, fuck! I am an athlete. I am not an entertainer. Fuck! These are the ABCs of me, baby. I do not dance, and I do not start preseason without a contract. Fine, fine! Jerry, talk to me. Breathe. Breathe, Jerry. I am out here for you. You don't know what it's like to be me out here for you. It is an up at dawn, pride swallowing siege that I will never fully tell you about, okay? Just, God, help me. Help me, Rod. Help me. Help you. Help me. Help you. Help me. Help you. You are hanging on by a very thin thread. <laughs> and I dig that about you. So yeah, um, how did we feel about Jerry Maguire now? Show me the opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say, first off the bat, this movie created a completely unrealistic expectation of the power of memos to spark romantic <laughs> relationships. How many memos have you sent out? And how many relationships have so come So many <laughs> and so few. Memos make Renee Zellweger so hot and bothered in this movie, just talking about the memo. She just loves that memo. <laughs> and how she's only working for Tom Cruise because of that memo. No, hey, I'm working with you because of that memo. I love that memo. statement. Nothing makes Renee Zellweger hornier than memos. And <laughs> Do you have an opinion about this movie, Seth? <laughs> no, it's mostly memo-based. All right, Chris. <laughs> I love it. I love it for the movie it wants to be. And I love it for the movie it almost is. Oh, God. <laughs> but I, I do, I had a great time watching this movie, similar and different to Top Gun, in that it took me back to a specific moment and a specific kind of movie that is much harder to find these days. An adult drama that was from a studio, and I think it's so funny because I do remember the same conversation from 1996 when these were nominated for Oscars, and it was like, Jerry Maguire is the studio movie, and I'm like, please, like, this is like a, a character-based drama, mm-hmm. like... That's hardly, like, the studio movie that, like, gets nominated for an Oscar now. So I'm not sure exactly how much this movie cost, but a lot. 50. It cost $50 million. When was the last time a studio spent $50 million on a, like, character drama romance that had no special effects, no real, like, high concept or anything? It's like a writer-director movie. So I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about the ways that it also, like, plays on Tom Cruise's persona. But I think it's a very interesting kind of role for him to play something that is both very much in his wheelhouse and something that is kind of not like a a departure for him i don't like this movie (laughs) i will say something later because ultimately in the very end i got got this movie got me (laughs) and we'll get there but we'll get to the getting of the got i 
don't think Cameron Crowe is a good writer or a good director. Every single lead character in a Cameron Crowe movie that I've ever seen is a straight white dude who's a writer, and Tom Cruise is a sports agent, but really he's a writer. And his characters always have a brief crisis of confidence until immediately afterward, everyone in their lives recognizes their singular genius and moves to love on and literally applaud them, uh, usually ending in physical applause. Every single line of dialogue in this movie is so pompous and directly calls attention to itself and might as well have like a flashing neon sign like pointed at it that says Cameron Crowe wrote this line. I feel like it's so stilted as just a piece of writing and as someone who's a writer by education that drives me up a wall because at the end of it every single character just talks like Cameron Crowe trying to be clever and I'm conflicted about it because I did have a significant amount of fun watching the movie, but I don't think it's good at all. I really don't think it's good. I don't think this is what sports agents are like or what sports representation is like. I don't think there was anything believable about really any of the characters in it. None of the characters felt like human beings. They felt like kind of signifiers moving through Cameron Crowe world, waiting for the soundtrack moment and the right clever dialogue to like line up and have his obligatory emotional revelation moments. One of which later in the movie very much worked for me. <laughs> At the same time, Cameron Crowe is so much a filmmaker of the 90s. And Chris, I do agree with you that it, it very much sets the tone of the 90s <laughs> for me <laughs> to like watch this movie. Like it's even the concept of a $50 million studio comedic drama is fucking unheard of now. And so with the same hand that I so eagerly fling shit at Cameron Crowe, I also simultaneously have a very deep conviction that it's a shame that filmmakers like that aren't able to make movies anymore. I grew up loving this movie. I had watched it quite a lot, actually. And coming back to it, it's not a movie I ever owned on DVD, so it had been a while. And I don't know how to feel about this movie. Yeah, I had a very entertaining time. It was very charming, was not boring. I happily watched it. <laughs> But I'm not sure of the message it's making, and I'm not sure how genuine it really feels. I didn't feel like any of the dialogue felt natural. <laughs> None of it! Not uh, one like, line! Like, that's not saying the dialogue was bad, because there's so many quotes in this movie. This movie should be called quotation marks. <laughs> like, the movie. <laughs> Jerry McQuotable? There's literally, like, so many quotable lines, which is a mark of a great screenplay, that you're, like, people are quoting. It's not even just, like, like uh, I drink your milkshake. Like, that's, you know, the one line everybody spouts out. There's literally, like, several different quotes that that you can say and people will be like, that's from Jerry Maguire, which I feel like is very uh, unique and atypical. I don't think that's the mark of good writing. I think that's very, I think it's very much akin to how much in the 90s, Saturday Night Live and the actors who came out of SNL and became comedy giants, they got so far along the distance that they went because of catchphrases. And I think this movie especially, but I think Cameron Crowe, overall is amazingly good at writing lines. But I don't think that's the same kind of craft as telling a story well, or yeah. telling a good story well. And I, I get that. But it, that's why I can't say that it's a bad screenplay, but also it's not great. Um, it's just very strange. I felt very strange watching this movie, because I think I do have complicated 
feelings toward Tom Cruise these days for reasons we spoke about earlier. It's just like, I, I loved watching it and I was kind of left empty at the end. Like, what was this movie really about? It was very strange. So we can get more into the details, but... um Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I'm a little surprised. I'm a little surprised that Seth defends the Top Gun screenplay and rips into Jerry Maguire's. I'm a little surprised that Becky doesn't hold the same candle for Jerry yeah. Maguire. Truths will be revealed here tonight. I'm surprised to find myself in a more defensive position of this movie than Hmm. I expected not everyone would love Top Gun. I did not expect (laughs) more people to like Top Gun than Jeremy (laughs) Potter. Like, the casting choice of Jonathan Lipnicki for me, I wrote, it's so distracting and he's terrible, but he's also the best. And that's kind of how I feel about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) He is so adorable. He's not necessarily believable because he's smiling the whole time. Like, he knows he's he's saying, a cute line. My daddy worked for United Way for 38 years. You know what he said when he retired? He said, I wish they'd given me a more comfortable chair. Wait, wait, wait. years, he said. And then my dad died. My mom took me to the zoo. And I loved to do it. No, wait, wait, because I, w- I want to tell you more about my dad. When... No, let's go to the zoo. <sighs> okay, okay, I'm nodding you, right. <laughs> I don't know, it's just my whole life I've been trying to talk. I mean, really talk. But no one wants to listen to me. You know that feeling? You, they just look at you. They just. Let's really... go right now. Let's go to the zoo. Ray, the zoo? You know, fucking zoo's closed, right? <laughs> you said fuck. Yeah, I did. I. I won't tell. He's like the baby Yoda of this movie, I feel like. (laughs) But I loved every time he came. I know, but that's why it's such a heart. I really can't fit this in one box. I can't say I loved it. I can't say I hated it. It was just a weird movie-going experience. Oh, see, I can fit all of that in the same box <laughs> where Cameron Crowe reaches for the most cloying, saccharine shit that he knows will eventually wear down your defenses and work. And he did it. <laughs> what did he do to you? I know. <laughs> I think of him as a less talented Aaron Sorkin. But- Aaron Sorkin, I think, has at least written a couple scripts where not every character talked like Aaron Sorkin. I've never seen a movie of Cameron Crowe's where everyone didn't talk exactly like Cameron Crowe, where every lead character wasn't a direct fucking analog of Cameron Crowe individually. I've got a comment that maybe Seth will agree with. One of my notes was, Tom Cruise is so beautiful in this movie. <laughs> he is also very pretty in this movie. He's I can't deny it. very beautiful <laughs> in this movie. Well, okay. So I want to <laughs> talk about Tom Cruise. <laughs> Let's start there. <laughs> Are you sure we're going to do that in this yeah. episode? <laughs> so one of the things I like about this movie is that he's cast as a sports agent, which on the one hand is kind of a perfect role for him because it's like an, ag- like an upbeat, aggressive, like... Like, yeah, 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 kind of guy, like, who's, like, cheering people on. But I think it's also really interesting because a sports agent is not, like, the star. Is He's the guy behind the star. And he's someone who, like at one point, like, looks at a photo of him next to someone and his head is cut Mm -hmm. off in the photo. And so I think it's really interesting to see Cuba Gooding Jr. won an Oscar for this movie for playing the star of 
you know, in, in this world, he's like the biggest star that we, you know, get to know a lot. So to have to play the star next to Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise being not the star is, I think, a really interesting performance. And I don't know, I just find Tom Cruise is doing a lot here. And there's moments of like when he does like the flip out or like there's big moments mm-hmm. where like you could see someone playing that moment like less but i just find it so very watchable and again like as in kind of top gun i feel like his casting is so meta but it's also very necessary that like like renee zellweger looks like tom cruise is showing up at her door not that jerry Maguire is showing up but like like when she's getting ready for a date it's like she's going out with tom cruise and she's so excited i'm like yeah like (laughs) i get it i find it very interesting and interesting I don't know if this is a bad thing or a good thing but his whole mission statement is prologue to the actual movie I was remembering the simple pleasures of this job how I ended up here out of law school the way a stadium sounds when one of my players performs well on the field the way we are meant to protect them in health and in injury with so many clients we had forgotten what was important I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and I'm not even a writer I was remembering even the words of the original sports agent, my mentor, the late, great Dickie Fox, who said, The key to this business is personal relationships. Suddenly, it was all pretty clear. The answer was fewer clients. Less money. More attention. Caring for them. Caring for ourselves and the games, too. Just starting our lives. Really. Hey, I'll be the first to admit it. What I was writing was somewhat touchy-feely. I didn't care. I have lost the ability to bullshit. It was the me I'd always wanted to be. Like, it's happening over the credits of the movie, actually, where he's talking about, like, there needs to be a change and things have to change. And I and I worked all night on this mission statement. And here I am. I passed it out. I went to Kinko's and printed all these copies. And, like, that's when the movie starts. And that feels like that would be a movie. <laughs> like that entire like change of character and it all happened before the credits end and i just found that very interesting he was basically having a manic episode where you write out something crazy and usually you come to your senses and don't send it but he did usually it stays in the drafts yeah uh, and as those of us who've dealt with mental health issues know sometimes things just have to stay in the drafts I was never convinced that his little manifesto actually had anything to say. Like I nothing that was contained in the excerpts of the of that like mission statement or whatever. Like he gets like insta-fired for for doing that. But really it doesn't seem like anything he's saying is all that revolutionary. I don't think it's supposed to be. I mean, I think it's supposed to be that like he had a silly moment where he I mean, what the things he comes up with are fairly banal like it's like oh we should be caring about our clients instead of money but i think it makes sense that they resonate with people without necessarily having to be like anything really bold it's just that like this company wouldn't like even that level maybe maybe or also becky i i do think it kind of brings up exactly what you were saying. The fact of the movie starting with him releasing that means that we don't get to see as much of him as, like, the agent that he was of, like, when he dug himself down to that, you know, like, mm-hmm. lower moral position that he catches himself in and is recoiling against. And I feel like a different movie would have had that be the first act. If, yeah. if not the whole movie, but, like, yeah. um, being the first act so we get to see him not in a montage of him talking over like voiceover but like actually seeing him go through these things and 
and feel like shit and write this. And then it like it's the instigating incident that um, starts everything else. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And and like there's a very, very, very brief sequence where he's being the, the shitty person who's the sports agent and like he's like visiting a football player who broke his neck in the hospital room, like with his wife and with his kid. And the kid like tells him to like fuck off, dude, because you're trying to get my dad back onto the football field after this horrible injury. And I actually thought that was really good and kind of was addressing that whole issue of horrific head injuries at, at a time that that wasn't nearly as much in the public consciousness. But as you were saying, Becky, because it didn't start at any other point in his career, that didn't really feel out of character or in character, because it's just, that's all we know of him. I don't know. I mean, I feel like you get enough of who he was by seeing the world he's in, and, like, he does the manifesto, but he's not fired immediately. It takes a while, so he's, like, I like that he thinks, like, his manifesto has changed everything, and everyone's gonna, like, and he does walk in, and everyone applauds him, and so you think, like, oh, wow, he did it, but instead, everyone's kind of like, oh, <laughs> like, that was a mistake, so I feel like there is a first act there until he gets fired. It's just that the manifesto doesn't come at that point. Like, there's a while before he gets fired. Well, but fired. then we also kind of don't really see what causes the the turn from when they're all literally applauding him to when they fire him. Yeah, I feel like it was just humoring him. Like, they didn't really care for it. Or or maybe they all hated him and wanted him out, and, like, that was the perfect pretext to get him out. Like, again, it's like, it's there are any number of ways that this could have been better written? Um, I mean, I, I think that it's... I got it that... No one really liked it except Dorothy because she's the one mm. that goes with him. Like she was actually inspired and everybody else was just like, yeah, great job. Oh, well, he's going to get fired. And she's the only one that truly believes in what he wrote. Mm-hmm. I guess I find this interesting because it's almost like trying to live up to your idealism because he releases this thing. But I think he doesn't fully believe it. Um, and then he can't believe he's fired and he has to like deal with like losing all his clients and actually focusing on one client and he struggles with that. And I, I guess I find that interesting um, that it, a, another movie would just have that change happen. And then that's the end of the movie. But this is like, yes, I am a different person now, but you're really not. And it's the struggle between saying you're a real person and actually becoming one. Yeah, like, I think that's the relationship with Cuba Gooding Jr. the whole time is that, like, he's made this manifesto that says he's going to put everything else first. And then he's like, oh, they constantly like, oh, shit, I have to live up to this or I'm going to lose everything. Like, he has this one guy who's willing to stick with him and this one woman who's willing to stick with him. And I like that this is a story about underdogs. Like, everyone in this story is a bit of an underdog. Or a former overdog who's becoming an underdog. Dog. Because, <laughs> like, even though... <laughs> Current and previous dog. Like, Cuba Gooding Jr. as Ron Tidwell, like, acts like he's a big star and the biggest player. But there's also moments where we see he, even... No one wants to interview him in the locker room. Like, they went after someone else. So, like, he is a star in his own mind. And he's, like, Jerry Maguire's star. But he's not really like the big football star he's like this third tier football player that no one's all that interested in so i like that it's these kind of like slightly scrappy people having to like scramble and and make things happen yeah and i think one point of comparison i would make is i think the movie does a much better job putting ron tidwell in the in the context of how everyone else actually sees him 
versus how he sees himself in comparison to how well it represents how Tom Cruise's character is seen by other people compared to how he sees himself. To its credit, I do think the movie is its strongest when those two are going head to head because they are the people who are directly calling each other on each other's shit. Did you like Cuba Gooding Jr.? I did. I was really unsure at first because it's such a high-key, high-energy performance from him in a very different register, and it's just a very different kind of character than most of the characters I've seen him do in other movies. I liked that dynamic of his character a lot, where in his own mind, he is already the number one draft pick and already the most popular football player in the country, when in reality, he's almost nothing. And I also gotta say, Regina King is my MVP (laughs) for this motion picture. I absolutely fucking loved her character. I loved the fact that she almost knew more than Tom Cruise's character did. I, I actually thought that, like, she should have been his agent or his manager or something. He basically was not an agent, but like a manager. In the reality of this movie, she definitely is. I just wish that it had given her that, the credence of actually letting her take on that role. She was only 24 while filming this movie. She's, I've always loved Regina King and everything I've ever seen her in. And I do think she is the closest that this movie comes to, to having like a real emotional core and heart. Wow. Because she is the only actually stable thing in, in the world of, like, Ron Tidwell's life and, and, and in his professional life, too. I love the centrality of, like, their romantic dynamic and how Tom Cruise, I think in part that his, like, romantic entanglement with Renee Zellweger's character is only so strong in part because he sees Ron Tidwell and, like, his wife and the real abiding love and care and presence that they show for each other. Jerry, tell me what to do. You tell me to eat lima beans, I'll eat lima beans. You tell me this is the best we can get, this is all we can get. The all we can get? Marcy, please, I'm talking with my No, 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 listen, this is what you're gonna do. This is what you're gonna do. You're gonna reject that shitty contract. You're gonna play out your existing shitty contract. And you're gonna go be a free agent next year. (laughs) Come on, hey, hey, baby, this is us. You and me, we determine our worth. Baby, you are a strong, proud, surviving, splendid black man. Mercy. You are the shit. Oh, baby. If you get injured, you get zero. Won't happen. I'm strong in mind. That's right. Rod? risk you bet on me like i bet on you huh you know (laughs) you know yeah it becomes really clear i think that if regina king does not like tom cruise he is not gonna stay (laughs) that's right ron's agent that's right Yeah, I was really invested in that relationship, too. Ron and his wife, as well as Ron and Jerry. Yes, she has a name. Her (laughs) name is Marcy. Because, like, when he was injured, I mean, I've seen this movie before, but I was still, like, on the edge of my seat watching it this time, and I was like, oh my god, is he okay? I know he's okay. (laughs) But, like, just because she was freaking out, and I like the way that it was done with, like, Jerry Maguire doesn't say exactly the right thing 
like in those moments like he he does care but he's not like overly i feel like i feel like even in that moment there's sort of a tension like does he care enough that like his client has been injured yeah i don't know it's just like that moment played like real and her fear felt real and like him waking up and then like playing that moment like it all just felt it took me on a like a real emotional journey that i wasn't necessarily expecting this movie to work in that level and i feel like a lot of other movies that feature any kind of sports characters like the the wife character in those movies would be just completely inert and thoughtless and have no point of view or perspective and at the end of it like in those other movies in those other roles of course the wife would be super supportive and all but like in this movie i really buy that for her the whole goal and the key really is her husband and really is like their family together and both building up their family and building him up to be the best that he can be professionally so that they can do the most for their family. Like, and I really feel like their relationship is affirming and supportive of each other, even in a way that a lot of other movie relationships that are seen as successful or romantic relationships don't actually model. Their relationship was surprisingly touching to me. I saw every movie nominated this year, (laughs) and I would either give the Oscar to William H. Macy and Fargo or to Cuba Gooding Jr., who I thought knocked it out of the park. I thought he was just, like, such a presence, and he hasn't really done anything worthy of this great performance since. He hasn't, and it's sad. It's sad sad. because I think he is just the epitome of charming in this movie. He, He nails the comedy moments. He nails the drama. Like, the end when he's like, I'm not gonna cry, like, talking to that reporter, and then... Yes! Like, yes, like, it's so great. Just everything. It's I love, great. I I mean, I he really makes scenes like the show me the money part work. <laughs> yes. Um, which is very interesting to watch now because it's such a known scene and known line. It's like, frankly, my darling, I don't give a, I, I don't give a damn. Like, they, like, they, <laughs> Honestly, like, like, more people could probably tell you to show me the money. Than yeah. Yeah. That. But it's like, frankly, my dear. <laughs> frankly, yeah. Well, apparently, <laughs> but, <laughs> apparently I'm wrong. But you know what I mean? Um, it's so famous and yes. watching it again I was just like I'm having fun watching this like like it, it's not like oh here's the line like I had fun watching that scene in particular and, and because and of him because, it's because, of, because him of him and Tom Cruise like playing off of each other I felt like they played off each other really well in this movie yeah what, what, what can I do for you Rod you just tell me what can I do for you it's a very personal very important thing hell it's a family model are you ready, Jim? I'm ready. Wow. Wanna make sure you're ready, brother. Here it is. Show me the money. Look at this. I took a long before, but still got a knife. Money! Oh, Jerry! Look, that makes me feel good just to say that. Say it with me one time, Jerry. Show you the money. Oh, no, no. You can do better than that, Jerry. I want you to say it with you. Good meaning, brother. Hey, I got Bob. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 show you the money. Not, not show you, show me the money. Show me the money. Yes! Louder! Show me the money. That's it, brother, but you got to yell that shit. Show me the money. I need to feel you, Jerry. Show me the money. Jerry, you better yell. Show me the money. Jerry, you my motherfucker! What you gonna do, Jerry? Oh, me the money! Oh, 
Congratulations, you're still my agent. I agree, and I don't think Tom Cruise is a very good comedic performer, but I do think that Cuba Gooding Jr.'s performance like absolutely made him funnier. And and I have to say, I think this is the quintessential Tom Cruise movie. To me, it's everything. It's it's missing the I'm on the side of a train, <laughs> you know, a speeding train. Cut out from the final version, yeah. Yeah. He does run, though. He does run. He does run. The charisma is there. He's funny. He's dramatic. He's got crying scenes. He's got funny scenes. Like, there's a range there. And it just, to me, when I think of Tom Cruise, I would maybe first go to Magnolia, but that's just because I love that movie so much. But when I think of Tom Cruise, I really do think of this movie. Like, I think this is the most Tom Cruise-y movie, maybe on the dramatic side. If you're talking about, like, action movies, then you'd go with, like, Mission Impossible, but... Yeah, I think I mostly agree, mainly, I think, because of when it came out in terms of my... Like, this is when I was becoming aware of Tom Cruise, you know, like or becoming aware more of, like, movies and paying more attention. And this was, even though I didn't quite see it in the moment that it came out, like it felt like such a legendary movie at the time, like in one of those movies that like hits, you know, at the box office, at the Oscars, it's quotable. So it definitely is cemented in my mind as very much like the Tom Cruise movie, at least in some ways, like the better version of it, because I would rather see him in a movie like this than probably an action movie that a lot of people could star in. I enjoy him in Mission Impossible, but I don't necessarily need him to do that instead of someone else. And yeah, like I think Cuba Gooding Jr.'s win, I feel like it's one of those things that kind of gets a bad rap now just because it's so, I guess it's mostly known for Show Me the Money and maybe people for, like haven't seen the actual rest of the movie but in a also while. he had did like snow dogs after you know like i think if he had kept doing yeah. really stellar work then it wouldn't have seen as such a like oh how could they give him the oscar and i think it would be much harder to pigeonhole that as he won for show me the money if he had yeah. followed that I, I really do like and, and talking that out like it it which makes I, me feel sad. Like, I, I want to say that it probably is not his fault because he probably was not given the opportunities that he would have been, you know, like... I don't know. I I'm, don't, I'm assuming, not his agent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that he didn't choose Snow Dogs out of a pile of, like, potentially Oscar winning. I don't think it's going out on a limb to say that a black man winning Best Supporting Actor probably is not going to get offered the same caliber or quantity of good roles after that Oscar win that a white man would. Yeah. He was in As Good As It Gets, What Dreams May Come. I he mean, had a small role in As Good As It Gets. It's, that was a, yeah, that was a very small yeah, role. Yeah, like, I feel like he was doing okay for a while, because he was in Pearl Harbor. Again, not a great movie, but, like, a, a high-profile movie. And then, actually, it looks like six years later with Snow Dogs. I think maybe he just wasn't getting the right There's not a lot of roles, roles in there, yeah. Yeah. I think he just probably wasn't offered the right parts. Yeah, I have to say he was good as OJ in the... And the American Crime Story. Okay, enough about Cuba Gooding Jr. (laughs) I need to talk about how this movie got me. Oh, yes, let's do it. Because I got a scene that I got got. I got got. You got got? I got got. (laughs) This whole movie, I put up all my walls. All shields were up. All evasive maneuvers were underway. I successfully avoided every manufactured emotional crescendo. Until that fucking speech. The speech, I, got, the speech got, got me. You got got I, by the speech. I don't know how I got got. We live in a cynical world. <laughs> Which line was it? Was it hello? You got me at hello? Was it the her, think her it response? Was, I honestly think it was you had me at hello that like just started me going. And I was like, wait, is it dusty in here? 
It was literally like, are my allergies acting up? What's happening? Oh, no, I'm, I'm feeling things. We live in a cynical world. A cynical world. And we work in a business of tough competitors. You complete me. And I just had. Shut up. Just shut up. You had me at hello. You had me at hello. Is the whole point of that speech that it's not a good speech? Because he, he says, like, I usually can come in here and command a room. Because I don't think it's a very good speech. It's a terrible speech. Well, that's, yeah, but that's the I point, so. right? She cuts yes, him that off is the point. And she's yes. kind of just like, you like Because he's like rambling, hello. right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Because he's basically <laughs> doing a memo, but like out loud to her. It, well, and not only that, but it's it's set up. Could, and I rewatched a little bit of Jerry Maguire today. But it's that scene, the, the moment of the scene is set up to directly parallel the scene earlier in the movie where he shows up among the women's circle and like... Mm-hmm insists on trying to say the right thing to Renee Zellweger. Um, and again, I, there's so much about this movie I do not like. Um, I, I especially think that the the feminist knitting circle that's um, happening in di- her house... Divorced is women's just, group? Yeah. yeah. It's weird. There's no even attempt at a setup for that or a justification why that's happening. I think it only happens so that a circle of women can sit in judgment of Tom Cruise when he's yeah. making emotional speeches. I agree. We're like, fine, okay, that's fine. As much as I tried to resist and be unassailed by the emotional daggers thrown by Cameron Crowe, as saccharine and fake and manipulative as that whole movie is, and especially that scene, I absolutely got got. And I think for me, it's mostly testament to Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger as actors. I really do think they're great in general, but I think especially in this movie, I I do completely agree with you, Chris, that it very much feels like she's uh, acting against Tom Cruise just as Tom Cruise and not as some sports agent character. <laughs> and Renee Zellweger, we've understandably focused more on Tom Cruise in this. Well, um, this was her breakout role. And I, I think that's for very good reason, especially in those emotional moments. I do think there is a vulnerability and an emotional availability that she has that I don't think most other actresses can call upon. Look, all I know is that I found someone, and he was popular and charming and not so nice to me, and he died, okay? So why should I let this guy go? Why? When everything in my body says that this one is the one. Take it easy, all right? I was just looking for a few fun details, that's all. Oh. Well, why didn't you say so? Well, I don't know if you're interested in this one little detail. Yeah, I'm But I was just about to tell you uh-huh. that I love him. I do. I love him. I love him. And I don't care what you think. I love him for the for the man he wants to be, and I love him for the man that he almost is. I love him, Laurel. I love him. I love him. Hi, Jerry. I think the relationship is really interesting, which we haven't talked all that much about. The pacing of it is 
strange weird. in that they it's get really weird. married about roughly halfway through. <laughs> yeah. Also a day after they go on a date. But I like it because it avoids, I think, a lot of cliche things that could have been just like the typical beats in this. And instead it's like, oh, they get together. And then the, their relationship, like we were just talking about Top Gun in the last episode, and it was like, it was hot, it was passionate. And this is like, this is a practical romance. <laughs> like it doesn't, it's not hot, I don't oh, think. Oh, it's not even practical. It's like about, it's almost entirely about in- avoiding embarrassment. <laughs> and taking care it's of like, her kid. Like he has a great relationship with her kid. So it, it feels kind of like a mistake. And I like that tension. That, I actually like, did too. In a lot of ways, I didn't feel like that was intentional on Cameron Crowe's part. <laughs> I bet he thought it was like a great love story or something. I I actually do find that to be one of the strongest elements of it. The way that they clearly aren't in any position to know whether or not either of these people would be good for each other at all. <laughs> and in fact, they each of them kind of knows that they're not really great for each other at all right now. I have to disagree that their romance is not hot <laughs> because that scene on the porch is probably one of the hottest scenes I've ever seen. <laughs> the strap? Do you yes. like the strap? Yes. And like, I even like their scene in bed with the jazz playing, because I think it's funny and very intimate and real that they're laughing together in bed compared to, like, Take My Breath Away, <laughs> like, the backlit, like... But also, know. that the jazz music was great. They were very wrong to make fun of it. Okay, yeah. The gay babysitter knew it was that. The scene at the door is, like, I got a little flushed. <laughs> yeah? Like, for real, like, yeah. him just, like, kind of kissing her and, like, the camera kind of slowly going over in the straps. I was like, I'm sold. I gotta say, the, I do have to admit, the straps moment, that was pretty great. That really was actually very good. Okay, that part is sexy. I agree. It is. It is. It's more, like, I don't think their sex scene is sexy, and I don't think after that it feels... They're so not it's passionate. More, yeah. Yeah. It's not about... Well, we see him earlier in the movie having, like, wild fucking sex. Like, never stop Okay, me. but okay. <laughs> can, we, can we talk about... What's Loser. her name? <laughs> Kelly Kelly so Preston. <laughs> not one line of Kelly Preston's do I believe in this movie. Yeah. Not once. Let's not speak. Every not every every sex positive character is like a literal demon human. Like what the fuck is up with yeah, that? Yeah, I don't love her character, and I don't like the way she plays it. Not yeah, it's it was terrible. Much. It's it was, much. It was it's... terrible. There, there's a lot of that in this movie. There's there's so many good actors in this movie, but a lot of it is so like on the nose writing wise that I don't know. Like she's very villainous in this movie. When I'm like, does she really have to be that person? She couldn't have been a also, little bit more. Also, Dickie Fox. Yeah, Dickie Fox. Yeah. This that character takes up like five or six minutes of this whole movie. Is that the agent? Yeah, I like that. He's like Tom not, Cruise's mentor figure. He's not. He's like he's in not one alive. minute. He's in like one minute. He's not alive <laughs> in this movie, but they keep fucking cutting away to him. Right. That was an actor playing him. I like that. I liked it. I hated it. It reminded I me of like uh, when Harry met Sally, where they keep cutting to like the couch. Like, that was good. <laughs> When Harry Met what? Sally is a good movie what? that's well written. Okay, I and don't the, know. <laughs> the cutaway characters in When Harry Met Sally expand and and expound upon the themes in the relationships of the characters. I think that's just too in its own way. It's more just like 
comparing doing it in a shallow way but like a good shallow <laughs> like he's because comparing it to sports and like an agency which is like not an appropriate way to speak about a relationship but i liked the like kind of irony and juxtaposition but the rest of the movie hammers every single one of those same themes on the nose and in most cases literally explains it through overt lines of dialogue. Like, it's not like that cutaway did anything to add or in any way comment on what was happening. It was just so, it was so, that was a Cameron Crowe. I'm very sorry that Cameron Crowe ran over your puppy (laughs) when you were a child, but oh my God, you're so angry. Yeah. Oh Um, boy. I don't think, I just don't think he's a good film. I, I think that's one of those things that you do as a writer when you don't know what to do and you're like well we have to have something in here that comments on something so let's have a cutaway why not i have a thought (laughs) what they get married why do they still live at her sister's place doesn't he like live on the beach like in a nice house it's like where their office is right Uh it's like his house on the beach why aren't they living there do they live at her sister's place i think they do also like i don't know thought that was weird i liked bonnie hunt yeah, I like always. I always like Bonnie. Hunt. I liked. A, I I basically like all the supporting characters in this quite a bit. Yeah, I like. I like her too. Yeah, she has a very refreshing like, and I a lot of her lines were ad lib too, which was and they're fantastic. She's one of like the most razor sharp comic voices ever. Um, can you explain <laughs> the directorial choice of being of these insane close ups of so many of the characters looking directly into the camera? at each other with very close-ups. Something I've noticed, even when I was 13, I was like, that's jarring. (laughs) And it Mm. happens throughout the movie. Isn't that kind of a Cameron Crowism too? I don't know, but I find it odd. And I, and I, and I I don't think, I don't think it works. (laughs) I didn't notice that. Really? It's it's, Renee Zellweger does that with Jonathan Limnicki. I mean, if we're going to call out problematic stuff, can we please address how he shows up at her place drunk is her boss. Oh, yeah. Hits on her real hard and kisses her. Yeah. (laughs) And she is all about it. (laughs) I mean, is that problematic? I don't know. She's into it, but also not good. But also he he apologizes the next day. Yeah. But also it's just, it's, it's strange. I like it. Like he shows up looking all risky business with his sunglasses (laughs) on. That part was hilarious. And again, yeah, it's like, it's awkward, but, like, he does apologize, and she is into it, so it would take a different tenor if she was like, no, like, get out of here, but... They're clearly into each other, because the second he's like, do you want to go to dinner? She's like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think it's just, like, context of, like, if she was not into it and had said no, and he continued to act like that, then that would be I think the problem is story. we're supposed to like Jerry Maguire, and he did something that... Even if the girl's into it, you shouldn't do because it's a work relationship. And that's where that's like, that's cringy. Yeah, I don't know. But she kind of followed him because she has a crush on him anyway. So it feels like sort of not a work relationship. It it quickly becomes not a work relationship. That shit. Yeah. I don't necessarily even say all that to say like, I think this is a horrible movie that shows the mistreatment of women. Because very clearly their dynamic between each other is that that kind of chemistry. Okay, I want to ask, who has better chemistry, Renee Zellweger and Tom Cruise in this movie, or Vanessa Redgrave and Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible? (laughs) Ooh. What? (laughs) Ooh. Now, see, that's impossible, because uh, Vanessa Redgrave in Mission Impossible is at a level of horniness that no other woman, I think, could achieve, just scientifically, medically speaking. 
again, that's part of the European nature of that movie's atmosphere that I, I think we really can't discount here. Yeah, I, I would say I would say it's pretty clear. Are you team Renee or team Vanessa? Oh, I'm team Vanessa. All right, that's what I thought. So since 1996, um, Tom Cruise has starred in many, many, many movies. But the last time he did, like, a drama was, I think, in 2008 with Valkyrie. Something that wasn't an overt action movie, even though there was definitely action in that movie. Unless you count 2012's Rock of Ages, which was a musical. But almost everything else was an action movie. I don't know when Lions for Lambs came out, but... That was about 2007 mm. or 8. Too. Yeah. Yes. That was 2007-ish, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it's been like Jack Reacher's and Night and Days and Mission Impossible's. Like, I really miss him doing A Few Good Men and Magnolia, Jerry Maguire, even having like a romance but there yeah. are romances in Mission Impossible, but like not nothing you really care about. You're not there for the romance. And you know that that woman's going to die. <laughs> She's going to die in a couple minutes. <laughs> There's going to be a plot device in everything. Yeah, it's interesting because on one level, you can like really see Tom Cruise's career as very almost like predetermined. But like he he really set out to be an actor, not a like he wanted to be a movie star too, but like not a action movie star. He really resisted doing that and resisted doing sequels and was very, very controlled and like smart about his choices. He sought out different directors to work with. And now he does the opposite. He is in the same movie, like, repeatedly, Mission Impossible, or something that feels like it. He's working with Christopher McQuarrie a lot. Like, a lot. the Mission Impossible used to be, like, a different director every time. And yeah. now he's not even taking a risk on, like, a new director on these movies. Feels a little bit sad and maybe goes to what Becky was saying about him. Something feeling, like, kind of wrong about him. But it just feels like... I feel this, like, sense of fear. Like, he doesn't have a different look. You know, he, like, still is trying to look like he did when he was in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. And I just... I feel like he tried to do a lot and, like, did take risks in his career at times with, like, Magnolia, Eyes Wide Shut, Born on the Fourth of July. Like, he did go out there on a limb. Even The Last Samurai, he has, like, a goatee and a mustache. Yeah. Like, switched it up a little bit. And I feel like he was trying to get this approval that he, like, obviously he is doing fine in terms of, like, people like him, but I don't think he ever got the, like, acclaim and approval that he was looking for or the recognition for, like, really being an actor. And I think he's at this age where, like, he can't afford to take risks anymore or it's too afraid to take risks. I I think it's the latter. I think he's gotten caught in a holding pattern like a lot of other people have, Um, especially a lot of other people who reach that level of fame. You know, and it's like you get to that certain point of success and you no longer have anyone around you who, not only no one who tells you no, but also like no one who's smart enough to be like, well, that's a cool idea. What if we tried it this way? (laughs) You know, like, and again, like even down to like picking the same people to work with over and over and over again, like that alone is such a diversion from the things that that made the most interesting parts of his career possible. Yeah, it feels like he just wants sure things, like sure things that are going to, you know, he's going to be the lead. It's going to be a box office hit. It's going to probably have a sequel. Yeah, like something that could have a sequel. And I just don't find that interesting. Like, sure, I'll go see the next few Mission Impossibles because they're fun to watch. But it doesn't make me find him very interesting. I think it will be interesting when he's like 70 and still acting but can't pull off the, the action role anymore. And maybe he'll actually 
you know, be cast in really, really interesting roles again. I mean, Lord knows if he will, but <laughs> I, I hope that's what he does. Well, and it's also been the, like he came up in this era of the movie star when the movie star was the biggest thing. And now yes. movie stars kind of don't exist. And he's like one of the last ones. So he is now like leaning into like the franchise is the star now. And so he's like still in the franchise. But like, honestly, like Mission Impossible could probably go on without him. And, you know, whether or not it'd be any good is one thing, but, like... You put Tom Cruise in, like, who did The Witch? What's his name? Robert... Uh, Eggers. Eggers. Put him in a fucking Robert Eggers movie? I'll see the shit out of that. You know, put him in an Ari Aster movie. Like, all these up-and-coming people. That, or even... So, a couple of years ago, there was, a like, a big epic sci-fi movie called Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, the original title was Live, Die, Repeat, which I think is a much better title. The original <laughs> title was All You Need Is Kill. Which I think is... There's a, a long title. history of the title. Of the yeah. yeah, it was a lot of titles. But it was awesome. That's the last, like, really, really big Tom Cruise movie I loved seeing. And I also wonder why he doesn't try more movies like that. Like, he's, I think he's had another couple of big flop sci-fi movies, too. But that's still an action movie. Like, he was a Minority Report. True. Like, that's these are true. all, like, action movies. Even if that's he's good true. in them... It's just like, what happened to, like, The Firm? You know, what happened to Rain Man? I want to know why he was in The Mummy. Like, Yeah, like, that that seems like a weird choice. I I have not seen his Mummy movie, but when that, even when that came out, I was like, was this movie completed ten years ago and someone just lost it and found it a couple weeks ago? That was a weird choice. What the fuck was up with that? strange it's so weird and it's so weird especially because chris like you've talked about this this whole time like for a man who had that much insouciance and just early early perspective and understanding about how his career could play out and for someone who had such clearly defined parameters for what he wanted his career to be it's weird i think he wants to be on top and the way you get on top is by doing these big action movies because a smaller movie is a risk and he's probably thinking more like a producer than he used yeah. to, which is mm. then you have to be smart about being, you know, financial success rather than just like taking creative risks. And I wish he would get cast in movies, not have to produce every single thing. Yeah, but like when yeah. you talk about like him in a like Robert Eggers movie or something, it's like it's hard to imagine him not dwarfing something like that. Like he did it in Magnolia. Was that was a very that bum. Was... That was a movie that would be hard to dwarf. But... <laughs> that, that, that's that was also a very particular thing, though, because you're also talking about Paul Thomas Anderson, who had such a cachet as a as a writer director, as like an auteur figure coming out of Boogie Nights. That I think Tom Cruise saw him as like a director on the level of a Scorsese or a Coppola, like on his own like personal dream list of the kinds of filmmakers he wanted to work with and maybe he just doesn't see that kind of filmmaker there anymore i don't know i don't know we, we can't know. read his thoughts and he won't share them <laughs> so. <laughs> he will issue a rebuttal episode to this podcast i did come away like still like even more impressed with his work ethic same um same. here and just like the foresight that he had like early in his career which you know we we all know tom cruise is like pretty controlling but to know the degree of it was pretty interesting and you know as we were talking about in the beginning of this episode of like who is tom cruise to us is like to me he's batman <laughs> <laughs> or like he's the closest thing we have to a real superhero he is rich he does death-defying stunts 
He has a string of gorgeous women coming in and out of his life, including Nicole Kidman and Katie Holmes, <laughs> who both dated Batman in various movies. Um, God, and he's true. probably completely nuts. So I <laughs> got don't a know. dark side in there. Yeah. yeah, he is someone that I'm just like, wow, you don't exist in the same reality as I do. Like you are on a whole other level. And there's not that many people, especially in like an age of like social media, where you get to know way too much about celebrities. And, you know, they don't most of them are not nearly as careful with their image as he is. It's like, wow, you're doing a whole different thing than the rest of us are doing. All I'm saying is I want a cruise cake for the, at least for cake. this year. Like, come on, you Let's guys. We just buy it. Also. Could we? Yeah. Okay, you know what? Actually, let's just go. It fucking taste the same if it's cake. not from Tom Cruise. That's also true. Tom, send us a cake. I want a Kidman cake. <laughs> it's a meat pie. <laughs> okay, never mind. I'll take a cruise cake. It's like a Holmes creme brulee. And that's all the dessert we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode, our next episode will be our 100th episode. Woo! And- We're going to go back to our very first episode in spirit, which was about a tornado. Right. I I got that. I was waiting to see how long it would take to connect that dot. And yet this one will will spin us in a very different direction to the land of Oz. We're going to look back at The Wizard of Oz, the 1939 MGM musical, as well as Return to Oz, the quite different sequel that came out in 1985. And we will represent the Lollipop Guild then. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcast product. And please rate and review us five stars or more so that more people will check out the show. Also, show us the money at patreon.com slash when we were young so that we can provide more free episodes of this lovely podcast to you. I have been Seth Pearson. I'm Mr. Black People. And I love him. I love him. And I don't care what you think. I love him for the man he wants to be. And I love him for the man he almost is. I love him. I love him. I love him. Hi, Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? It was Jonathan Jonathan Lipnicki. Oh. Hi, Jerry.